This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations about difficult or hidden subjects. Tonight is part of our ongoing series about transgender issues. I'm going to be talking to Frank Brooks about gender nonconformism and mental health. Frank Brooks is a clinical social worker here in Portland. He has a PhD in clinical social work and is the chair of the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Issues Committee for the main chapter of the National Association of Social Workers. Frank is a specialist in transgender and human sexuality issues, and he lives he, uh, here in Portland with his partner, Marvin Ellison, and is the dad of a grown son and a stepdaughter. Welcome to Safe Space, Frank. Thank you for having me, Anne. It's a delight to be here. Great. So um, tell me a little bit about how you first got interested in these subjects, how it is that you're, you've become an expert on this. What drew you to it first? Well, I would say the origins and probably started in my childhood. Uh, when I was growing up, I wasn't really aware that I was gay, but by an early age, I knew that I was different. And then by the time I got to middle school, I think that my peers had uh, singled me out as being different. And also some of that had to do with gender role nonconforming behavior, acting in ways that were not considered uh, adequately masculine, one might say. And then um, I tried very hard to conform to what I thought would be uh, masculine or male behaviors, but never really succeeded. And so that was a very painful process, uh, developmental process to go through. Um, I received some support from some other uh, boys who were also gender role nonconforming, but there wasn't uh, a way to unite around that or to talk about those kinds of issues. We just uh, could acknowledge each other somewhat and try to support each other in a very hostile social environment, which demanded conformity, including uh, gender role behavior. Fast forward to now, um, in my uh, professional work, I was doing research on self-destructive and suicidal behavior among gay men and bisexual, I mean, excuse me, gay boys and bisexual boys in adolescence. And in the research, I discovered that there was a high correlation between feminine-identified behavior and gender role nonconforming behavior in these boys and attempted suicide. As a matter of fact, it was a marked difference. And even though uh, most researchers in gay male development knew of that phenomenon, it really piqued my interest. And so I said, oh, I want to do research on that. And so I uh, entered into the uh, doctoral program in which uh, at Simmons College in Boston, in which I was able to develop a research study looking at uh, transgender or gender role nonconforming behavior in boys and social workers and how social workers uh, were dealing with that in various child welfare uh, settings. So that that deepened my commitment to both gay boys and men and their experiences with gender role nonconforming behavior, but also transgender people and their struggles with the same issues. So let me make sure I'm really understanding you. What I what I understood you to say is that the more kind of non-traditional around the expression of masculinity these boys were, the more at risk they were. Yes. 
a lot of the uh, study results that I was able to write about were about the lack of knowledge that social workers felt that the social workers needed knowledge regarding transgender issues and gender role nonconforming behavior and also uh, what to do with those boys when they were in their practices. So it was very challenging for the social workers uh, in the study to even know where to go to get that information. Right, and how long ago was this, Frank? That, uh, I conducted that research between 2003 and 2005. So, in fact, not that long ago, actually. No, no. Yeah, so the information is available, but the kind of the training and the exposure to know where to find it is still, that link is not strong enough. Absolutely. There are requirements in social work education to uh, integrate sexual orientation and gender identity issues into social work curricula for students at both the undergraduate and graduate level. However, that is not um, anywhere near complete. So interesting because in my psychiatric residency, I got very little training. We, we definitely got a lot of training in sort of sexual orientation, but in terms of gender identity, it feels like you know, too little. And yes. I'm, guess, I'm guessing they do a lot more now already. So coming back to the experience of the boys yes. for now, um, it sounds like what you're saying is that the more different the boy is, the less traditionally masculine, the more he's at risk for suicide. But, but I'm assuming you mean that that's partly a reflection of how at risk for violence he is or bullying or humiliation. Is that what you're... Yes. Is that the cause? Of, you know, sort of take me on the link from what it means to be different to how you get to these sort of marked increase in risk for suicide. I think the linkage is between the, of course, the gender role nonconformity and the rigidity with which our society um, holds that gender role behavior, that men can only act in masculine ways, women can only act in feminine ways, and there is not for boys and uh, with regard to masculine behavior, there is very little uh, room to nonconform. And so it does not take very much variance from what is considered appropriate masculine behavior for a boy at a young age, a fairly young age, to be in social trouble. And the, the socialization process that those uh, their boy peers go through includes bullying, uh, victimizing, and actually um, social acceptance of violence directed towards those boys because they are so different. Until very recently, sissy boys were, it was considered um, their own fault that they were victimized. If they only behaved in more masculine ways or in a more appropriate way, then they wouldn't be bringing that trouble on them. And this is blaming the victim. Yeah. Absolutely blaming the victim. And so recently there have been some more enlightened research projects that have shown that if the community, the school, the family is able to support and provide safe spaces for gender nonconforming, gender role, excuse me, gender role nonconforming children, um, the likelihood of those linkages to self-destructive behavior and also to bullying and victimization by others is is very much reduced. So you said t two things there that are quite interest me. You corrected yourself from saying gender nonconforming to gender role nonconforming. Yeah. What's the importance of that distinction? Well, I think it's really important to remember that 
uh, gender role refers to the socially prescribed uh, behaviors to either being male or female, masculinity, femininity. Um, and therefore, it is important to remember that that's a role and that it's been created by society and that that can change. And it's certainly arbitrary what uh, gender role is. Right, it's changed historically, you know, tremendously, yes. for instance. Yes. yes. So gender nonconformity isn't specific enough for me. I think we all know what it means, but gender role nonconformity, um, I think, is is more specific and puts a responsibility on the social forces that create the gender role. It speaks to how it's a construction, a yes. creation. A social not, construction, Yes, absolutely. and not sort of objective reality, per se. Right. How it's it, meant to be handed from on high kind of thing. Yes, and 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 the the amazing thing about it, if you reflect on gender role behavior, how arbitrary it is, and how masculinity and femininity are are not innate, biological, biologically determined. They are socially determined, as you mentioned, and also that um, therefore they can change, and we have changed some. However, um, for gender role nonconforming boys. The stakes are really high still, and they are almost, along with some girls and women, considered prime targets for uh, violence and bullying, usually of a very virulent type. And I mean, would you say that's, I mean, for me, you know, as a, I feel like the, the climate for women around expression of competitiveness, ambition, these so-called, you know, maybe beforehand gender role nonconforming behaviors that's really changed that climate is changing yes. needs to change more yes. but would you say that that same level of progress is being made for gender role nonconforming boys i would say the progress is behind that yeah. uh, but some progress has been made and what's your understanding of that frank like why do you think it's slower and more difficult for that to change for boys well mostly because we still live in a sexist, misogynist culture that is having a lot of difficulty getting to uh, equality between uh, men and women, boys and girls, and other folks who don't um, identify as masculine or feminine, male or female. And so because we come from a historically male-dominated social order, it's taken a long time to, um, for especially for uh, males and men in our culture to understand that it's possible for a boy or a man to act in feminine identified ways. And it's not pathology. It is not a rejection of masculinity. It's just a difference. And that has been very, very difficult. I think girls and women are much more accepting of it because they understand what it's like to be oppressed because of their feminine identified behavior. Another another example of that is that lots of uh, transgender youth who are cross-dressing uh, male to female are oftentimes astounded or shocked when they are, run into the sexist, misogynist attitudes that are out there for women that they had never been aware of, even as um, non-traditional boys. Right, because if they were still in a male body, they experienced male privilege, presumably. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, I wonder, you know, as I think about the virulence of this, this has been a theme in every show over the past two months is the level of violence that anyone who isn't sort of inhabiting very, very stereotypical gender roles may be subjected to, especially boys. 
And I've been trying to understand that. Why does this get to people? So what does it, what is this incredibly deep urge that it touches in people, that it evokes that level of rage and, and violent intent? Well, I think you use the term male privilege. I think, I think men have been socialized to believe that if this occurs, if this gender role non-conforming behavior uh, occurs, that it's somehow a rejection of male privilege. Um, I also believe that it is another symptom, if you want to call it that, or, or indicator of the, the depth of the misogyny. Because I think that there are certain crimes against women that are terribly um, violent and virulent and are meant to degrade the women and to uh, humiliate and shame them. I think the same things happen. Ha- same things happen with transgender people who are discovered to be transgender, and it you use the term "furious" or "infuriates" people because it's looked at as the ultimate violation of gender role um, compliance. Right. I mean, so what I, I'm trying to make it in some ways even like m- more emotional to just get the feel of it, because this uh-huh. is not a rational response. You know, this is a, this intense response. And I'm, you know, it seems to me this is where I'm wondering is, you know, if a boy is shamed for any expression of weakness or dependency or need and, and learns that masculinity is about the rejection of those things, yes. that at some level seeing someone seeming to express some sort of feminine identified mannerisms or gestures or way of walking or holding their hands or, you know, anything like that, that it triggers that sort of deep shame in themselves for how some part of them may have been treated harshly. Is that how you make the link in your mind? Yes. And and I also think um, James Gilligan wrote a brilliant book on violence. <laughs> and he he did a lot of his research in prisons in Massachusetts, and he, he, he identified and talked about and described the shame that men feel um, and the humiliation that they feel when their masculinity is questioned. And I think I, I think that's what you're referring to is that there's that intolerance of the shame and humiliation that would cause someone else to act out, and men are also socialized to act out their rage and anger towards others. That book by James Gilligan on violence actually was one of the huge pivotal books that I read in my sort of formative thinking. And my understanding of that book was that he was basically saying almost all acts of violence are in some ways a response to the feeling of being dishonored or shamed and like feeling dissed and feeling like I have to assert my masculinity by being by being powerful in this degrading of the other way. Yes. And that that kind of violent, angry power over move was a way to to cope with that actually deep shamed feeling inside. Yes. And 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 the violence towards others or violent reaction is of course just one option. But it's the one that is socially sanctioned amongst men and in male socialization as much as we deny that i think superficially uh it's still a prevalent uh principle of male socialization yes the persecution and the oppression and violence directed towards transgender people and uh gender role nonconforming boys and and girls usually past a certain age also uh reinforces the gender role rules for other children so that's an important function of that. The other important social function is that it isolates 
socially isolates those youth, gay, uh, uh, gay youth, some lesbian youth, and certainly transgender youth. It isolates them, and which is a form of shunning. And that is, of course, the worst social position that people can have, which is another link to very negative mental health outcomes and no sense of belonging, social isolation, um, and a sense of burden to others, including youth families. They, lots of youth are very much concerned about bringing shame onto their family or their siblings. Right, so so the links to suicide then become much easier to understand when you spell it out like that. So I loved what you said, that violence is only one option as a way to cope with shame. And um, I want to kind of bring this back to you in a way. So you had your own experience of being, you know, wounded, whether emotionally or physically, for being a little bit different. Yes. And, you know, I, I so when I try to picture you doing this research and finding out more about these boys and the risk of suicide and just the anguish of that. I, I wonder, how was it for you personally as you kind of really plunged yourself into this, uh, you know, learning how, how painful it is for so many? Well, I think that over time, I came out in, as a gay man in 1978. And at that time, I had a very limited consciousness of these issues as they relate to gender role nonconformity. Um, because I had been invested in presenting myself as masculine and trying to make the grade, so to speak. Uh, it wasn't until after I came out and I started interacting with lots of other gay men, many of them gender nonconforming, gender role nonconforming, excuse me, um, and, and becoming much more at ease and much more understanding that, oh my gosh, there's nothing wrong with this behavior and celebrating it much more. That was that was the beginning of my consciousness. But what specific to your your question about um, the research, I had mixed feelings. It was very sad. It was very hard to hear these stories. All of the social workers believed that uh, these youth were at risk. At the same time, the the they they were also doing incredible work with these youth um, with no resources and very little to go on. And they were still trying to advocate on their behalf and protect them and to build a safe, a safe zone around them, uh, despite the lack of support from agencies or schools or the other organizations in which they worked. Um, mostly, it is neglect. It is neglect um, of these issues, not understanding the need for these issues to be addressed. And so transgender issues are now on our radar screen, uh, the same way that gay, lesbian, bisexual issues were 20 years ago around youth. Because we, there's still a lot of work to do to protect youth of sexual and gender minority youth. However, um, progress has been made with regard to sexual orientation. And I think transgender youth will also benefit from that progress. So what I'm hearing you say is there was both simultaneously a lot of sadness, but but it was heartening to see that people were really doing their best. Even without information, there was a yes. lot of really good intention about helping these kids. Yes. And that things, I, I sense you feel quite hopeful that I things do. Are, that things will continue to get better. I do, and I've seen changes in my practice with parents of young children who are ready, willing, and able to bring their children in for supportive um, 
counseling and therapy uh, who are doing proactive things on their behalf in schools to keep them safe. Parents are no longer as concerned as they were that their child is going to be gay, which which has been a big change, and that they can move right into gender, role, nonconformity, no matter where it leads them. So that's very hopeful. Right. They're just trying to support their kid to be who that kid is going to be. Absolutely. Yeah, in that whole process. Uh, Yeah, so of course there's so much reason for hope. Yes. I see that. Um, You know, it's interesting for me as a parent of a son, um, you know, I'm... I'm aware you can't help but be aware of any, you know, gender role nonconforming behavior and that just that slight twinge of fear, like will he suffer for that? And, yes. But not wanting to squelch it. I think so many parents can feel that. Mm-hmm. I involved in this organization locally called Boys to Men, which is a lot about supporting boys' development and a, and a mother's group. What were you going to say? Great organization. Yeah, wonderful organization. No, well. That's my plug for them. <laughs> and a mother's discussion, a mother of boys' discussion. One of the women was saying how she brought her son to a concert and he was wearing pink plastic sandals and happened to end up on the stage as part of some exercise and the the musician like held her son up and said who are you out there what mother let your boy come out here in these sandals like shamed her and her son for that and this is maybe 20 years ago but it was really it was the the exact thing a mother would fear Mm -hmm. happening to their child it was really appalling so what do you say to parents when they they're trying to support their child to be who they are and to express themselves in the world, but the risk of violence and shunning, as you rightly say, which can be just devastating, mm-hmm. is so great. How do those parents protect their child? What, what, what do you, how do you advise the parents? Well, first of all, I, I say you are the key to this child's safety, and you're already uh, seeking out these resources and questioning schools and other community organizations uh, regarding the safety of your child is is wonderful. And to build, I would recommend that you build a team of community-based providers, including school teachers and the administration of the school, to make sure that you have a plan in place before anything happens. You don't have to wait until something happens, until some incident occurs, but do it beforehand and um, have a plan in place for the, if an incident happened, bullying or some sort of a transphobic comment is made or um, a child is targeted because of uh, some sort of different behavior, that that the plan goes right into place as soon as, as you call or someone notices that, the teacher notices it. Because now the, the biggest complaint of youth in schools, especially middle schools and high schools, are that adults don't do anything. That's especially true of some groups of teachers who just look the other way when they see this happening. The sort of boys will be boys kind of attitude. Yeah, right. right. But it's also guilt by association because if a if a teacher, especially a male teacher, sticks up for gender role nonconforming youth, what does that say about them? Do you think the and teacher has a fear of being targeted themselves? Guilt by association? Sure I do. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think, I wish it would were different. I think there are a lot more male teachers now who stick up for all youth, no matter what's going on with them, including... Uh, LGBTQ youth, but I think that um, we still have a long way to go there. So I want to come back to it. You know, a parent say who really, you know, this is all new that you know they haven't been exposed to a lot of thinking about this, and they're afraid that you know what we call gender dysphoria or a discomfort with this with their physical uh, with your physical sex that that's a mental illness. I mean, given the history of um, our field 
as mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you tell a parent who says, you know, is this a mental illness? Is something wrong with my child? You know, can I fix it? Well, it's no surprise that that parents would think that since it's uh, gender identity disorder in children and adolescents is still listed in the DSM-4TR, the Diagnostic Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. So they would naturally go to a pathology model in their thinking. I I approach it from a totally different uh, perspective, and I don't look at uh, gender dysphoria in and of itself uh, as a psychopathology. I look at it as a a condition that needs to be dealt with and handled um, in a sensitive, caring way, which all mental health professionals would hopefully approach an issue like this, but that um, it's resolvable. And over time, a child will come into their gender identity and uh, figure out a way to resolve their gender dysphoria along with their support, the parents' support. Uh, So I immediately talk about alternatives to the psychopathological model. And I think that's very relieving to parents because there's still, as you said, there's a history of oppression of both gay and lesbian people, mostly gay men, because lesbian sexuality wasn't really considered, um, considered, period. The task now is to change the diagnostic manual and remove gender identity disorder. It's really a medical condition that might have psychological and emotional ramifications for a child or an adult, but it's a medical condition that needs to be treated medically first and psychologically second. Okay, so when you say that, it's a medical condition first, what do you mean by medical condition? What's the medical part of it? Well, that to assist children and adolescents and adults on their if they are interested in resolving gender dysphoria through hormone replacement therapy or sex reassignment surgery or any of those other steps that people could take, there is a role for medical professionals there. In other words, what you're saying, this is not a problem with your mind. This is something you can fix with your body. Absolutely. And I think we're going to get there. I think that the shift is changing. I think there will be changes in the DSM-5, the the new revision of the DSM that's coming out next year. I'm not sure exactly what that will look like. But um, when the DSM, when the APA removed homosexuality from the DSM in 1973, the DSM-4 which was published in 1980, contained, still had a category of egotistonic homosexuality, which was then removed in the dsm four. So I'm looking at progress, not perfection, that gender, it will go from gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria to being out of there. That's what I'm hoping. Maybe that's the right note to end this interview on. Frank Brooks, it's been wonderful to talk to you. If someone is listening to the show and is concerned about a child of theirs or their own identity, are there resources locally that you'd recommend? A book or two that you feel like are really wonderful for family members or for the uh, the parents to read that you'd suggest? Yes. In the last uh, year and a half, a book called The Transgender Child by uh, Stephanie Brill and a co-author, recently came out. That's very helpful. Um, There is a social work text entitled Transgender Emergence, and that is written for both professionals and family members, and that is Arlene Istar-Lev. And so those are two resources. And also, of course, the fabulous uh, main transnet here uh, with Alex Rohn and and, uh, Rendon Parker, who do wonderful work and will help parents get to where they need to go with regard to their 
children. And people can look that up through maintransnet.org. Frank Brooks, has been a great pleasure to have you as my guest. This is Thank Dr. You. Ann at WMPG, and I've been talking to Frank Brooks, uh, clinical social worker and with a Ph.D. in clinical social work and expert on transgender and human sexuality issues about gender role, nonconformism, and... Um, some of what it's like to be different in our culture, some of uh, the literal physical risk involved. Uh, I want to thank Elisa Bunker for helping me set up the sound tonight and uh, Maurice Lennon for the music. If you'd like to get the transcript for this entire show or email it to a friend, please go to our website at www.safespaceradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show to get weekly announcements as well as downloading it as a podcast from iTunes. Um, Coming up next is Thaddeus with Covering the Bases.